Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds. and Denise uh, for all they do on behalf of the Republican Party across the state, but for um, delivering the prayer and the pledge. We're just grateful to both of them. And thank you to each and every one of you for being here. This is an incredible crowd. Uh, we had a great turnout this morning, so we appreciate you all taking the time to be here. And it truly is just so encouraging to see so many Iowans who are politically engaged, who care deeply about this country and believe that there is absolutely a better way. I am so pleased to have the opportunity this afternoon to introduce, him, to introduce and welcome to the great state of Iowa a good friend and a fellow Republican governor, Governor Ron DeSantis. You know, both Ron and I were elected uh, governor for the first time in 2018. We both won a very hard-fought races in a year that wasn't necessarily very good for Republicans, and we both did so in states that at the time were considered purple. You know, as new governors, we both had some pretty big plans for our states, but of course, neither one of us could have predicted what was about to uh, come our way in the spring of 2020. So Ron and I had the opportunity to meet early on in our tenure as governors, but really didn't get to know each other until uh, the pandemic. And as you're all aware, those were extremely challenging and some very uncertain times for everyone. With absolutely no playbook, we both focused on protecting the lives, livelihoods, and freedoms of the citizens that we represent. I certainly appreciated the call that I got from Ron to ask me if I would participate on a Laura Ingram uh, panel that truly highlighted uh, red state trailblazers when it came to some of our COVID policies. On the call, we had the opportunity to talk about what was happening around the country. We talked about the lockdowns, keeping the kids out of school, the mandates. We talked about the similarities in the decisions that we'd made. We could both clearly see the harm that was happening to our kids. We could both clearly see that the lockdowns weren't working how we were the only two states to truly get the kids back in the classroom and one of the few states that were open for business. We both knew what it felt like to have the media relentlessly attacking us. In fact, there was probably no governor who was attacked more by the national media than Ron. But through it all, he held his ground. He had the courage to stand up for what he believed was right for what was best for his citizens and for Florida's children. And voters saw that and they responded. While this last election wasn't what we'd hoped for nationally, I'm proud to say that Florida and Iowa had a big old red wave. So four years after winning a narrow victory, Ron led a Republican blowout. Not only did he win by 20 points, but Florida voters selected Republicans up and down the ticket. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? 
In Iowa, we backed or we bucked the national trend too. For the first time in 50 years, our entire federal delegation is led by Republicans. We beat two longtime liberals, 40-year incumbents, and got freedom-loving patriots Brenna Bird and Robbie Smith across the finish line. We gained historic majorities in the legislature, and I am proud to report to Iowans that not only did we gain historic majorities, but we are getting things done. So this afternoon, Ron and I are going to talk about what led to the victories and about his new book, The Courage to be Free. Um, before becoming the governor of the Sunshine State, Ron was a member of co uh, Congress. He was a founding member of the Freedom Caucus who, again, bucked special interest and did what was right for America. Before that, I'm proud to say that he served his country in the military. He is a father of three beautiful children. And perhaps his biggest claim to fame is he is the husband of Casey DeSantis. Please join me in giving a big Iowa warm welcome to Governor DeSantis. Thank you. All right, well, they took that. Okay. <laughs> Did you take my podium away from me? They took the podium. Well, it's great to we be with the, you. We Greetings want the podium back. from the free state of Florida. We want the podium back. I want to thank Governor Reynolds for doing a great job. And, and here's the thing. As governor of Florida, you're kind of in a special perch because I know what's going on in the rest of the country because when people visit or move here, they tell me what's going on in their states. And I can tell you, people come from Illinois, they'll come give me a big hug and they'll say, I escaped from Illinois. People leave the, when the Michigan lockdowns, people coming very, very bitter about what was going on there. But I can tell you when I see Iowans in Florida, they're happy. They're happy about being up here. They like spending time in Florida, but it's all good. And, um, and it's really great to be here. Um, I think if you look in Florida and in, in Iowa's success, some other red states, you know, people have been able to look and vote with their feet over the past few years like never before. So the state of Florida, we're the fastest growing state in the country, number one for net in-migration in the country, number one GDP and economic growth amongst large states. And that didn't happen by accident. I mean, that's a result of the way you lead, the values they uphold, and the policies that you support. And so my book, I think it's out there, just so you know, number one book in America for nonfiction. There's a lot of people that aren't happy about that, I can tell you. And so, uh, but we talk about though, is so I, Kim mentioned, I got elected governor, very difficult year by 32,000 votes out of like 8 million cast, half a percentage point. And Florida, for the 10 years previous to me being elected, they were one-point races in the governor's races, in the presidential races. It was like the prototypical large swing state for our entire country. And so a lot of people told me, you know, you got in, it was close, it's divided, don't rock the boat. 
you know, trim your sails, just understand what you're walking into, and then kind of bide your time a little bit so this settles down. And I rejected that advice. My view was that I may have gotten 50% of the vote, but I earned 100% of the executive authority, and I intend to use it to be able to advance our agenda. We're going to make sure we make things happen in the state of Florida. And part of leading, I said at the beginning, was I am not doing polls to tell me what to do or what to think. And I've never taken a poll since I've been governor. And the reason is a poll doesn't, a leader is not captive to polls. A leader gets out in front and leads the polls and shapes public opinion by setting out a vision, executing it, and delivering big results. And so that was our position from day one. That's how we're going to go. The other thing we recognized is, you know, I could have the best ideas in the world. I could make the best decisions in the world. But if I don't have people in the administration who are sharing the vision and working hard to execute those decisions, then they're not going to amount for very much. So we made it very clear to people, because in politics, people get in for different reasons. They have different agendas. And we said, look, if you're part of this administration for any reason other than advancing the best interests of the people of Florida, advancing our shared values, uh, if you have your own agenda, then pack your bags right now, because we're not going to deal with it. And you're better off just leaving. And when we had rare instances, we sent people packing. And so if you look at my administration, part of the reason we were able to do well, you know, they're not leaking to the media. We don't have palace intrigue. We don't have any drama. It's just execution every single day. And we end up beating the left every single day for four years we did. And the final thing I said is, look, we're going on offense. Uh, I am sick of people getting elected to office and they kind of sit back like potted plants. They let the media determine the, the, the debate or the left determine the debate. And look, people that get elected, some of them don't like making decisions because every decision you make, there's going to be some people that like it. There's going to be some people that don't like it. So if you're just above the fray and you're never getting involved, well, you know, you're going to upset fewer people that way. The problem is you don't really get much done if you do that. And so I said we're going to lead, we're going to be aggressive, energy in the executive. Alexander Hamilton said leading characteristic of good government. We're going to be energetic. We're going to be finding issues. We're going to be raising issues. And I sat at my desk my first day as governor. I looked around the governor's office in the state capitol, and I said, I don't know what SOB is going to succeed me in this office, but I can tell you this. They ain't going to have much to do. I'm getting all the meat off the bone. I'm not leaving any low-hanging fruit, and we're going to get it done. And, and so we set out, and we, we, we did, a, did a lot of great things early. But then, as Kim mentioned, all the governors then had to deal with COVID. And I think that that was probably the biggest challenge that governors have faced in our lifetime, just because it elevated what was going on in the state. You obviously had uh, policies promulgated by people like Fauci uh, that were very damaging. And I'm just proud that when the world went mad over COVID, when common sense suddenly became an uncommon virtue, 
Uh, the state of Florida stood as a refuge of sanity. We were a citadel of freedom, not only for Floridians, but for people all around our country and indeed around the world that escaped to the state of Florida over that, those very difficult times. And we just were not going to allow our state to descend into some type of Faucian dystopia. We're not going to let people's rights be curtailed and their livelihoods be destroyed, so we wanted to lift people up. And as Kim mentioned, every single thing we were doing, we were getting absolutely filleted by national media, local media, the left. Even some Republicans were attacking me, you know, back, you know, three years ago or whenever we started to do that. When I said and Kim said, have kids in school, there were Republicans that weren't supporting me uh, on that. And now everyone acts like they were supportive of Delta. That was not true back then. And I even had supporters during those times calling me saying, listen, you know, you need to, you need to lay off this. The schools, you're making a mistake. You know, maybe you do some type of uh, mandates or more restrictions or something, all this other stuff, because you're getting killed and we're worried about you. We're worried about whether you're going to be, you know, able to be viable in the future, whether you get reelected, all that stuff. And, you know, I just said this. I said, look, my job is to protect the jobs of the people I represent. And if that costs me my job, uh, then so be it. But I can't be looking out for me and the short-term political over people's liberties and freedom and jobs. And so we just made the decision, and that's just the way it goes. And so we stood against the expert class across the board, and guess what? They were wrong on almost everything. They were wrong on lockdowns. They were wrong on masks. They were wrong on school closures. They were wrong on rejecting natural immunity. They were wrong on the efficacy of mRNA jabs. And they lied for three years about saying COVID came from a wet market when we know it came from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And I think one of the roles Florida played, because if Fauci had his way, you would not be able to travel to another state without showing your, your vax papers. They would have imposed more restrictions, but they knew that Florida and Iowa and other states, but they especially knew Florida, that we were standing up against it. Early 2021, we banned uh, uh, MNRA mandates for school children. No school mandates, no university mandates. We, let, we said that that's not appropriate. We banned vaccine passports in the state of Florida. Not going to have to show your papers. We banned, and then we banned when they wanted to do the, um, uh, the mandates. And that wasn't just Biden that wanted to do the job mandates. There were corporations like Disney that wanted to fire their own employees if they didn't. So we called the special session the legislature, passed protections for all Floridians, and said nobody in the state of Florida should have to choose between a job they need and a shot they don't want. And we saved tens of thousands of jobs in the process. And so the results speak for themselves. I mean, people respond to good policy, they respond to good leadership. I mean, compare Florida to New York, which is the closest state to us population-wise. We have millions of more people than New York State now. New York State's budget is twice the size of the budget of the state of Florida. And yet, we have lower, uh, we have better roads, we have better uh, services, better performing K through 12 schools, and of course, no state income tax, 
What is New York getting for all this money? They're not producing good things. And not only is their state budget twice the size of Florida, New York City's budget alone is the same size as the state of Florida. Yet people are fleeing these places, and they have you know, relatively high debt. We have one of the lowest debt per capita, lowest tax per capita. And I know Kim's really working on getting the taxes down in Iowa, doing a great job. Hopefully you guys can join us and have no income tax at some point. That would be great. So Iowa's managed well, we're managed well fiscally. We also have, I think, a difference between how Iowa, Florida, Texas, some of these states see things in California, Illinois, New York, when it comes to law and order. We are a law and order state in Florida. We don't hide from that fact. We proudly support the people that wear the uniform. When they were rioting in Minneapolis with the BLM riots, I immediately called out the National Guard in Florida. We dispatched state law enforcement officers to around the state. We said, you're not burning down cities in the state of Florida. And guess what? They didn't burn down cities in the state of Florida. We also signed legislation after all that because what you would see, like in Portland, they riot. They get arrested. They take their mugshot, slap them on the wrist, put them right back on the street. So we have legislation in Florida. If you riot, if you loot, if you're engaged in mob violence, you're not getting a slap on the wrist. You're getting the inside of a jail cell. We're going to hold you accountable. And I have to confess, I have to confess that that anti-riot legislation I signed earned a public rebuke from the United Nations, which I wear as a badge of honor. You also have this problem of prosecutors being elected, usually with big campaign contributions from people like George Soros, and they get elected, and they get elected to impose an ideological agenda. They say, we don't like the criminal justice system, so we're not going to enforce certain laws that we don't like. And so you end up in like San Francisco. I talked to a guy, someone went, broke into his house and they wouldn't prosecute the guy. You can get mugged on the streets of LA and they may not prosecute the person that's mugging you. And so in Florida, we said that's totally unacceptable. If you're a prosecutor and you don't like a law, then the appropriate response is to resign your office, run for the legislature and try to change the law. You don't take the law into your own hands and put your people at risk. So we had, we had a situation in Tampa where we had a prosecutor supported by Soros who said he wasn't going to enforce some of the duly enacted laws that the state of Florida had passed. And so I removed that prosecutor from his post. He is gone. You know, we've also done very well pushing back against Biden's open border policies. We're very tough on immigration in Florida. You know, a lot of people say you have all these Hispanics and the 62% voted for me, but they say you can't be tough on immigration because of that. That's totally false, okay? I came in, we banned sanctuary cities in the state of Florida right off the bat. We've sent people to the southern border to help Texas uh, apprehend folks. 
Uh, we have, and it's not just the border that has, has the, the issues in terms of U.S.-Mexico. I've got boats they're trying to bring in from Haiti to dump people into the Florida Keys. And so the Coast Guard works hard at stopping, but Biden doesn't give them enough resources. So I did a state of emergency. I've mobilized our assets. We've been able to interdict even more. We've repatriated, helped the Coast Guard repatriate 11,000 illegal aliens back to Haiti and Cuba and some of these other places. We even were able to deliver 50 illegal aliens to beautiful Martha's Vineyard. And they said they were a sanctuary area. They had signs saying nobody is illegal. They said all the refugees and the illegals are welcome. And then they deported them the next day. Are you kidding me? And finally, you know, we, we do need uh, to build a wall on the southern border. Uh, that needs to get done. And we had a situation in Florida in September. We had a major hurricane come through. And it did a lot of damage. But one of the things it did, it, it, it knocked out a bridge to one of our islands, Pine Island. And then it severed a causeway to Sanibel Island in three different places. And the locals are being told, hey, you're going to be out of luck for six months. And these weren't state roads or bridges, so it wasn't necessarily our issue. But they came to me and said, Governor, we can't have six months. Can you help us? I'm like, yeah, I'll help you. So I got my guys together. I said, listen, I don't want red tape, okay? We just need to start build, building this immediately, and I want to get it done. And three days later, we reopened a rebuilt Pine Island Bridge, which nobody thought was possible. So I just want to make the offer to Joe Biden, if you want to start getting serious at the border, I'll send my Florida builders to the border. I'll build the wall myself. I'll do it. Just let me at them. We'll get it done. Final thing I'll point out about Florida, and then I uh, look forward to chatting with Kim, is uh, I think we really uh, have done a great job of drawing a line in the sand to say the purpose of our schools is to educate kids, not to indoctrinate kids. We believe in the rights of parents to be involved in the education and upbringing of their kids. They have a right to know what's being taught in the schools and know the curriculum that's being used. And if there's things like pornography, the parents have a right to say it should be removed from the schools. And that's why we've done things like ban critical race theory from our K through 12 schools. We're not teaching kids to hate our country or to hate each other with your tax dollars. Uh, no way. But you know what we are doing? We're putting out a positive vision. We are emphasizing and reintroducing American civics into the schools in a very big way. People need to be taught what it means to be an American. They need to understand our rights come from God, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, all these important things. They need to know why people have fought and died for our country because no matter what they do in their lives, all of them will be called upon to exercise the duty of being an American citizen. And I think we owe it to not just ourselves, we owe it to people before us who've sacrificed to make sure we're graduating people that aren't listless vessels 
but that actually have a foundation of knowledge about being a citizen of the republic. And to that end, I think we're the only state that has designated one day every year, November 10th, as a day where school children will receive instruction about the evils of communism and Marxist-Leninist regimes. We've got to tell the truth about this, and we are. We're also leading the effort, and I know Kim and Iowa are stepping up too. We do not, ha we should not have a situation where a teacher is telling a second grader that they were born in the wrong body or that their gender is a choice. That is wrong, and it doesn't have a place in Florida schools. And we, we had a fight over this. We had to tussle over this. The media didn't like it when we, when we raised this. We even had a, a business had, uh, that's in Florida that some of you may have heard of in the Orlando area called Walt Disney World. And, you know, Disney can't, here's the thing. If you know anything about Florida, from like the late 60s until I became governor, they ran the state of Florida. If there was anything that they wanted, it got done. If there was anything they didn't want with the legislature, the legislature would stand down. And that was just the way it had been. And people just assumed that we would gonna gen have to genuflect to Disney. Well, they thought wrong when it came to me. We were not going to bow down to Disney. We were going to do what's right. Because leadership is not about subcontracting out your decisions to a woke company in Burbank, California. Leadership's about doing what's right for the people that you represent. So we signed the legislation. We said we were proud to do so. They then said they were going to try to get it repealed and all this other stuff. Then you had these Disney executives caught on tape saying it's their agenda to inject sexuality in the children's programming. And look, when I look through these issues of education, it's not just through the lens of a governor, it's through the lens of a dad. And we have a six, a four, and a two-year-old at home, and I just think parents in Florida and Iowa throughout the country should be able to send their kids to school, have them watch cartoons, just be kids without having somebody's agenda shoved down their throats. So we were in a situation where Disney's doing that, which is bad enough, but it's not just them doing it in a vacuum. Since the late 60s, they have enjoyed unprecedented subsidies and privileges granted by the state of Florida. Not me, a long time ago. They had their own government that they controlled in central Florida. No transparency, no accountability. They were exempt from laws that everyone else had to pass. Major tax breaks, and yet, here they are advocating for very harmful policies and attacking us for standing up to parents' rights. So it's one thing to say they can say that or advocate, but there's no way you can say that it's appropriate for the citizens of Florida to have to subsidize their woke activism. So we said that this arrangement's outlived its usefulness. Their values do not match with our values as a state. And so we put forth the process, and I put the finishing touches on a couple weeks ago, signed legislation. Disney has been stripped of its self-governing status in the state of Florida. There's a new sheriff in town.
So I want to thank everyone for coming out. Uh, I really appreciate being here. People have been very, very nice, and I really appreciate it. Very obvious that people pay attention to these issues up here in a really significant way. So, so God bless everyone for doing it. And Governor, I look forward to having a, having a conversation. Um, although I should say, with respect to Disney, and it's in the book if you guys, if you guys read, people weren't talking about it at the time. And I didn't, I mean, we, did, we weren't hiding it, my wife and I, but we just didn't mention it. I actually got married at Disney World. It wasn't my idea, mind you. I met my wife. I was in the Navy, and we started dating, and then I got mobilized, so I got sent to Coronado, then Iraq, and all this other stuff. And so, but I told myself, like, as soon as I get back from Iraq, I am proposing, and I am going to ask her to marry me. And if you know my wife, that was not a very difficult judgment for me to make. And so we did, we did that, and, and so she starts preparing the wedding, and I said, listen, it's all you. I don't care. I just, I'll show up. You do what makes you happy. It's your date and all that. And so she's thinking about different things. Her family apparently were big Disney enthusiasts. They would take the kids to the park from Ohio back in the day. They would watch the, the programming and they really liked it. And so they said, you know, you should do the wedding at Disney. So she broaches that with me. And I'm just like, does Disney do weddings? I was like, what, Cinderella's castle? I don't know that that's like what any, but no, they have a very nice chapel and, uh, and it was great. And I just said, listen, I said you'd get whatever you want, but I'm just going to do one line in the sand. No Mickey or Donald Duck in our wedding. We're going to have a traditional. And we did. And it was really good. But you just think it just shows you how life can work. Here we were. This is 2009. Getting married there. Starting the rest of our lives. Who would have thunk that 13, 14 years later, you know, we'd be staring down the mouse and really deliver them the biggest political defeat they've ever had in the history of Florida. The Lord works in mysterious ways. It shows you how far they've gone, right? So funny. I love that story. I love it. Uh, so listen, I know Ron, and you've just heard all of the things he can, he's working on. And I'm telling you, he's just getting warmed up. Does this governor strike you like a don't rock the boat governor? No, no. He's got a lot of things going on uh, in Florida. So listen, welcome to Iowa. This is your first trip. Um, so we're happy to have you here. Congratulations on your book. Uh, I don't know if you said it, but number one on the New York bestsellers list, that just had to rip the heck out of them. I think they just probably hated to see that happen this morning. So I was down in Florida a couple weeks ago, and Ron welcomed me with 85-degree sunshine, beautiful weather. So I thought in Iowa we should reciprocate with just a little snow and say welcome to Iowa uh, in March. But thanks for being here. We really, really appreciate it. So let's just talk a little bit more uh, about the media. I think, you know, we both get the opportunity to deal with corporate media, certainly not our friend. Um, the hysteria that they create around common sense conservative policies is just unbelievable. Um, you know, I don't know if I had a quarter for every time they said I, our decisions, tax cuts, were going to wreck the economy, we were going to demolish education or collapse state government. I think the best thing we can do is just prove them wrong and show them that that's not the case, but, uh, which we're going to keep doing, and I know you're doing it every day. But how, how have you been able to stand up against the lies from the legacy media? And tell us a little bit about, you know, how do you then get the policies out that you're working on? And do you think there's ever an opportunity that we'll be able to change the culture with the media that we deal with? Well, look, I think you just need to know what you're dealing with. And the fact is, we have a lot of these legacy outlets have become very partisan. And honestly, there's nothing even wrong with that. The, the history of our country, most media was objectively, overtly partisan. 
Hamilton had his own newspaper. Jefferson had his own newspaper back when they were clashing in the early days of the Republic. So it isn't like it's anything that, that is abnormal. I think what uh, annoys me is when they have that agenda, but then they act like they're somehow neutral umpires or gatekeepers. And they are not neutral. They are not gatekeepers. And so Republicans should not cede that ground to them. What you should do is you should treat them as partisan um, actors in our, in our political drama. And, and that's just what it is. So, for example, you know, you know, some of these outlets, if they want to tape an interview with you, uh, they will splice your answer to try to make you look bad. That's just the reality. So just know that, and, and, and I would say, you know, you reject that. In Florida, I do press conferences all the time. Anyone can come. They can ask me questions. Uh, but to kowtow to some of these outlets I think is a huge, huge mistake. Uh, I think that they um, have an agenda, and they're going to try to use, use you to advance their agenda. So why would you want to be a part of that? And just think about... COVID, how bad they did during COVID. If you said, even a year ago, but certainly two or three years ago, that COVID originated from the Wuhan Institute of Virology, they would have said you were a conspiracy theorist. If you had said that lockdowns would not stop the spread, they would have said that you were some type of a nutcase. If you would have said that schools needed to be open, they called Kim and I a lot of names for doing that. And I think you were Death Santis. That's is that right. right. Yeah. COVID and, Kim and Death Santis. And here's the thing. They, Who they, was right, by the way? Who was right? <laughs> yeah. But here's the problem with the schools. Like, for example, they created a culture of fear and they scared a lot of people. So when we had the school summer 2020, we said to parents, look, if you prefer your kid learn remote, we'll give you that option. And there were parents, and, it was, and it's sad to say this, but it's the truth. The parents who opted for that, if you look at counties that, that had a lot versus a little, it almost perfectly tracked the political performance. So the blue areas had more parents that were keeping their kids out. The red areas were like 99%. You know, the rural, rural counties like 100% of the kids in school in person. No problem. And why is that? I think it's because those parents are more likely to believe corporate media narratives. And I think they thought their kid was going to be in danger by sending the kid to school, when in reality, isolating the kid was really what was putting them in more danger. But I don't think they would have thought that on their own, I think it was because this was drummed into them. And I can tell you, when, when we said kids need to be in school, play sports, all that, oh, they were saying it was going to be so, so bad and all this other stuff. And it was all about just whipping up fear. And so some of the stuff in normal politics, fine, attack me, lie about me. You know, I don't really care. But the COVID stuff, that caused a lot of harm to a lot of people. Uh, and they've got a lot to answer for. And yet, have they shown any remorse about anything they've been wrong about. One of my staff just put something out where uh, two, two years ago I, I made the observation, which is true, that COVID behaves in a seasonal pattern based on the different regions of the country. And uh, one of the legacy outlets said that DeSantis was, uh, you know, experts roundly reject what DeSantis is saying or whatever. Now they're coming out with papers saying it's a seasonal virus. And so, you know, it's just one. And I'll give you one final example. But I think it's instructive for how Republicans have to have to lead. We had there's a, a the college board that does these advanced placement courses created a course that was 
it wasn't in, in place yet. It was a survey that they were asking for the, the states to give their input uh, on AP African American studies. And so they sent it to Florida. And you look, our education department, some of it was fine. But there was like a section that was like neo-Marxism. They had queer theory in a black studies course. They had um, inter intersectionality, CRT, all these things. So, of course, Florida, we rejected that. Now, when you reject that, you know what the media is going to do. They're going to demagogue. You have like MSNBC saying Florida doesn't allow any black history being taught, when in reality our, re our, our standards require all of the stuff they say we're not allowed. But that's real history. Uh, that's not somebody else's agenda. Uh, that's not a Marxist way of bringing it. We're just doing the truth. And so, so they say this um, knowing either they're not even doing basic research or they know they're lying, but they care about the narrative. And I think what they do is if they can spin a false narrative, they know enough Americans are smart enough to realize they're lying, either initially or they'll figure out the facts. But they think they can get enough people to believe it, usually people that share their politics. And so I think it's worth it. So what ends up happening, their credibility continues to go down. Um, and really, the discourse, I think, continues to be worse. But uh, just speak the truth. You cannot be, as a Republican, effective if you are scared of what the media is going to say about you or if they're going to call you names. We knew with this course they were going to call me names. They were going to say stuff. But you can't let them veto you doing the right thing. So we just do the right thing, let the chips fall where they may. We fight back with the truth. And look, all I can tell you is I got elected by 32,000 votes. I spent four years of them attacking me and me fighting back, and I won by 1.5 million. So I'm fine with that. I'll let you grab a drink of water. So I know you talked a little bit about uh, uh, Hurricane Ian and your response to that. And, you know, in Iowa, Florida, we have our share of disasters. Uh, my first term, I, we had immense flooding on the western side of the state. We had a couple tornadoes we dealt with. And then a derecho, which we were out at Seahawk during COVID, and none, we didn't even know what it was. We had to look it up. So you'll appreciate this. It's like a hurricane that goes across the, the mainland, 145-mile-an-hour winds. You know, so governors are responsible to addressing um, the disasters. And I want to just say I was just so impressed with your response uh, to Hurricane Ian. It was remarkable and so remarkable that did any of you hear anything about it on any of the national media channels? No. Uh, so, so just talk a little bit about that. You talked about rebuilding the one uh, uh, road in three days, but just talk about how you were able to get everything stood up and, and delivered and get things back online as quickly as you did. It's, it's remarkable. Yeah, it's funny. I had people in other states tell me four or five days after the storm, like, uh, I know you must be doing one hell of a job because I don't hear the media mentioning this at all. Because, <laughs> you know, they wanted a narrative just to use against me. They didn't care about the people of Southwest Florida. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, four or five days after the storm, clearly there was a very effective response. You couldn't find CNN in the state of Florida if you had a search warrant. I mean, they were nowhere <laughs> to be found. And that's just the nature of it. They want to politicize it immediately. And we knew that. But, but you just have to uh, have your eye on the ball. So, really, it's just about preparation and then execution without worrying about red tape and bureaucracy. So we had 50,000 uh, utility workers stationed throughout the state of Florida. It knocked out millions of people's power. And then as soon as the storm left, 
these folks are out there hooking people back up. Because even in a really bad storm like that, the number of people who actually lose their homes or are displaced, thankfully, is still a very small percentage of everybody that is impacted in some way by the storm. So if you get everybody's power on uh, quickly, everyone just feels better that the services are going and all this. And so it ended up being the, the quickest power restoration in the history of Florida hurricanes, millions of restored within a matter of days. In southwest Florida, kind of close to where some of the major stuff happened, you know, you had some of the gas stations like Wawa and some of those were open the day after the storm uh, went by. We had Publix, our main supermarket chain, uh, got up and running very quickly. So that just, I think it adds calm if people are without power for three or four weeks, look, sometimes a storm may knock it out so bad that even if you have all that, if you have to rebuild it, it's, it becomes difficult. But if you can get that going, that makes a big difference. We also had search and rescue stage. So it's not just local, it's state agencies, Coast Guard, we work together. And when you have island rescues, you know, you're going in with helicopters and boats to be able to save people. So they did hundreds and hundreds of rescues, uh, which is really, really good. And then, yes, clearing the roads, making sure people can get around. And in these bridges, you know, that's a huge, huge issue to just have severed bridges there because you can't get people by boat the supplies that they need effectively. We were running choppers in the second day trying to help with power restoration. You, did, you needed the big trucks to go across. And so we basically just said no red tape. You know, people want to do the job. They can bid on it. We'll give you a few hours, whatever. I mean, it was the most streamlined thing you ever seen. And then we just did it. And, you know, the result was three weeks to the day, Sanibel Causeway was severed in three spots. And it was it was rebuilt three weeks after the storm. Pine Island ended up, it took us three days when we started it, but it ended up being less than a week where they were without access to their island. And that saved those islands because even if it would have taken a couple months you just wouldn't have had the recovery. So we're able to get in, remove the debris, get the power on, doing all this stuff. And those areas still have more that they have to do, but they are so much better off than they would have been if not. So I think a lot of it is just don't take no for an answer. Don't wait on somebody else to do it. We actually had with the federal government, they have housing, temporary housing, where they have a, a trailer program. So they can put trailers if your home is inhabitable but it was taking too long. So we launched the first ever state travel trailer program. So I go, you got there's an, uh, an elderly lady I brought to my state of the state last week. She's like in her 80s. She had no, nothing to do. She couldn't get a trailer for FEMA. So I was like, we'll take it. We brought her a travel trailer and she's able to live on her property while she rehabs the home. And she's really, really happy as a result. So that's just not just sitting back and, and hoping somebody else, because I could just blame the feds. I could just ding Biden on this, but you know what? I'd rather actually get things done, and so I have to take more responsibility. I'll do it. Amen. Amen. So I'm going to change gears just a little bit. Um, we're going to talk about your family. So uh, you obviously have a lot going on in Florida. You're driving a lot. You've had a very successful first term, and you're heading into the second just blaze with guns blazing. But you've also got a lot going on at home. So you and Casey are the parents of three kids one of which was born during your first term uh, as governor. And over the last four uh, years, Casey's also beat back cancer. So talk a little bit about what it's like um, for you and your family over these past uh, few years 
And uh, let's share with the audience a little bit of what that's like. I know Casey did say when I was down in Florida, even if he's been on the road for 12 hours, when he opens that front door, he gets three kids. Uh, and he gets to take over as dad. So, But tell him a little bit about what that's like. Yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, the, the family stuff, we're, we're doing like anybody else. I mean, people see, I may be doing press conferences, I may be getting media attention, but at the end of the day, we're parents. So before we had kids, I was a member of Congress, we did a trip to Israel. And my wife, while we were there, she took an empty water bottle like this, and she got water from the Sea of Galilee. And the reason she did is she wanted to bring it back, and we would use the water to baptize the kids that we had not had at the time, but we were planning on having. And so we did it, and uh, my, my daughter, Madison, was born 2016. We did the baptism early next year. Use the water, no problem. Have a lot left. Mason is born, our son, March of 2018. I'm running for governor, though. I'm in Congress. We didn't have time to plan anything. And so we said, let's just get through the election. So we got through the election, and we said, you know— since people are going to be at the, in Tallahassee for the swearing-in on January 8th, why don't we just do it at the governor's residence, and we'll baptize them there. My, my uncle's a priest. He can handle all that. And so we ended up doing that. I got sworn in. We did the speech. We canceled the parade, which I, I don't want pop-in circumstance anyway, so I was happy to cancel the parade. We went back to the governor's residence, you know, use this, baptize. Now, the problem is, you know, we just left the water out in one of the rooms in the, man, in the, in the governor's residence. We then go on about our thing. We go to the, the inaugural ball. Next morning, I wake up and I ask my wife, I said, did you get that Sea of Galilee water? She's like, no, I think it's downstairs. I'm like, I don't know if it's still there. So I rush down and there's, it's spick and span. There's nothing left off. Because if you saw this and you had to, you know, clean, you wouldn't think anything of it. So, so, so we were basically out of water. So then I was down in South Florida doing something uh, at one of the synagogues with some of the rabbis, and I do the press conference after that, and I, and I announced, I said, listen, just so you know, uh, we are now out of water from the Sea of Galilee. Now, we don't have a bun in the oven right now, but you never know what the future holds. And so within 24 hours, there were people in the Sea of Galilee in Israel digging water out of there. They sent me this big, beautiful glass jar that I had on my desk in the state capitol until Mamie was born, and we ended up doing her baptism with Sea of Galilee water. So we figure out a way to get it done. But so my wife, so governor is, is I do a lot. She does a lot for the state. I mean, she's involved in... Because, you know, we, we talk about the border and the, and the fentanyl, and, and we need to, de I think the cartels should be terrorist organizations identified as that. They're killing Americans. You need a wall. You need all these things to, to, to keep it out. But you also need to educate young people about the dangers. You also got to look at the demand side. So she's got a whole campaign in Florida called Your Facts, Your Future. She's saying, yes, don't do the drugs, but more than that, here's why you shouldn't do the drugs. Here are some of the pitfalls. And the fact is, when you have something like fentanyl, kids can do things which they shouldn't be doing, but usually would not be fatal. And if it's laced with fentanyl, that could be lights out right then and there. So the stakes of making a mistake as a young person, is much higher today because of this garbage than it was when I was growing up or most of you were growing up. And so she's out there educating. She'll do uh, assemblies with high school students and really showing them that. And she enlisted like Tom Brady, all these famous people to be in the campaign. It's been really, really good. 
Uh, and so she, she's done a lot. Then she has the, our third child, and then the next year she gets diagnosed with breast cancer. And it's a type of thing where it's not, not, no one ever wants that to happen to anyone, of course. But I think when women get it who are mothers of young kids, you know, it's very, very uh, sad because, you know, these are kids that may not have a mother unless this thing is, is taken care of. And so I think she saw that. It really weighed on her. Um, and I just remember we were talking about it, whether we sh should publicize it. Because, you know, at the end of the day, it's a private matter, but we're public people. And so we decided that we would put out a statement saying that she's been diagnosed, she's undergoing treatment. And I'll tell you, it was really rough from diagnosis up until that statement. But once we did the statement, you know, we had people all around Florida, all around the country praying for her. Uh, the outpouring was tremendous. It lifted her spirits big time. And she just kind of barreled through. It was not easy uh, for her to do. But um, she's now really better than ever. And I, I told Kim earlier at an earlier event, we took photos at, uh, on Inauguration Day 2019 and 2023. Same pose at the desk. Our kids, Mamie wasn't there four years ago. She was there now. We put them side by side. And I'm not just saying this because I'm the husband. You guys look at the picture and you tell me. She's prettier in 23 after going through all of that than she was in 2019. I don't know how you pull that off, but she was able to do it. Power of prayer, right? The power of prayer. She also does a Cancer um, Connect collaborative, too, right, that she's working on the state. So she does your dynamic duo. Yeah, I mean, she's trying to kind of break up some of the cartels that have developed about only certain people know with cancer based on an NIH designation. And look, I don't think that that should be determinative. So she really is, um, you know, challenging people to be innovative and to try to push the envelope to help folks. Yeah. So I was going to tell you, I might have a little bit of uh, water from Israel left over. I did the same thing, but it was for my grandchildren and not our children. So, and I think the kids are done. So I was going to tell you, I might have some backup, but it sounds like they already took care of you. But it was very special. Okay, final question. Um, so in your book, uh, The Courage to be Free, you talk about growing up in Florida uh, in a spring training town. And you called it your own little baseball heaven. But you do know where baseball heaven is right at, right? It's Iowa. It's Iowa. <laughs> thank you all. It's been, been great to be here. I want to thank Governor Reynolds for hosting us here, but also for doing one heck of a job. And I think you guys should all be uh, comforted to know, because I hear from, again, people from all across the country who come to Florida uh, you have one of the best-run states of all of these United States. That's okay, just a her. second. I got a little something I want you to open up that I think is pretty reflective of uh, your term as governor. So it's kind of our little badge of honor that we like to uh, hand this out. This may be a little X-rated. So I know, you... <laughs> sorry. But if anybody does this, it's you. So congratulations. Thanks for all you do. Thank Get you. stuff Thanks done. Thanks so much. Right?